Verse 24, Joseph said to his brethren, I'm dying, but God will surely visit you, bring you out of this land, uh, to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And then when you you know, go to Exodus and turn the page, and that first word, now, appears, the word is actually and. So it's a continuation of Genesis that we're reading. And these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. So it's very much one congruent account. The, the uh, whole course is you know, kept together. There are some things that I, I want to point out about uh, the Bible that you have. And I want to touch some questions that have come up recently about other uh, you know, organizations such as uh, Mormonism and you know, how accurate is you know, the Bible versus the Book of Mormon, things like that. Um, there are certain things that occur in understanding the Scripture. The first of which is, you know, when we're reading the Genesis account, which we've just finished, especially the things that took place ahead of Moses, uh, you're left to say, like, how did Moses know about creation? How did he know how these things took place? Well, uh, we're going to see when he spent time with the Lord on Mount Sinai, uh, as he received the law, the Ten Commandments, there's a great deal of information that was relayed there that we don't know about. So and we have the law and what Moses came down with, but the perception that, you know, if, if you got to be in the presence of the Lord and communicate with him with the clarity that Moses did, Whatever the Lord was going to deliver to you, fine, but there's probably a question or two you have. I, I have a list of questions that I need to ask the Lord about, you know, things that I've just, some have been resolved. Others have sort of resolved myself, but, you know, I still have questions. Others I know nothing about that I need to ask him. So there's that thought. Secondly, there are markers within the language that uh, Aramaic was what a good portion of that original writing was, in Genesis especially. In Hebrew, the whole thing is you know, uh, written in Hebrew and derived from Hebrew, but the, the Bible has gone through a number of changes, and, and it actually lends for us to understand it as being accurate. People say, oh, well, it's been altered over time by men. The beautiful thing is, it's, it's the ability to compare all of these different forms that shows us the accuracy. Okay? Um, for instance, if we put it this way, um, there are less than 20, I think it's 23 copies of um, most of us had to read Shakespeare's Hamlet. There, there are re less than what we would call you know, original copies. Okay? Where the original is, we have no idea. That's gone. Okay, uh, it was then copied and distributed because it was a play, and so each playhouse that it went into, the play had to be altered to fit that playhouse. You got to ch make changes to 
you know, where people come onto the set and how people talk and what their communication is. And so, you know, there are differences in those 23 copies. So we don't really know what the original sounded like. Okay. But we trust it. Most of us went through high school, you know, had to take British literature, read somewhere along the way. You know, most of us hated it. But anyway, in the process, we trusted that what we were reading had a high degree of accuracy. It has a high degree of inaccuracy because of the few copies that we had. If we had thousands, then we could say, look, in all of these, all of this is contained. And in all of these, all of this is contained. So we have to believe that this great portion is accurate to whatever the original was. The greater the number of copies, then the better it is for examining the accuracy. And that's what we have with the Word of God. Thousands of copies of the Word of God. Now, when you read in certain texts, oh, well, the best manuscripts contain this. Throw that right out the window. I'm not even joking, because usually what you're looking at, you know, it'll say like the original text says. Nobody has the original text. The best form is the great mass of copies that we have that we can examine against one another and come up with what you have in your hands. And then, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls. You take today's scripture and compare it against what was found there in the 50s and they're exactly the same if there were alterations over time leading to what you have in your hands being dramatically different than if you got way back in time a copy that was made and compared it and saw oh it's been changed over there are none aramaic it's not accurate but i use it as an illustration it's like our old English. So, you know, if you read Shakespeare with that 1600s language, you, it's not the language we speak today, but it's English, and you can understand it. You know, with a little help, you can get in a dictionary and find the words that are confusing for you and get it in context, and you can understand. Aramaic is that way with Hebrew. So Moses translated Aramaic into Hebrew to render Genesis. The thought is that Adam and Abraham and all of these patriarchal fathers that give us the history from creation to Moses had actually written these things down. They had their own account. And Moses has now acquired them and he's translating them into Hebrew. The Jews fall into sin they are sent away by God into captivity. That's putting it mildly. But now they're in captivity. While there, the culture shifts and everyone's speaking Greek. They're struggling to know what the Hebrew language is. Less and less people are reading it. And so the Jewish people demand of their leadership that they render them a Greek copy of the Hebrew language, of the Hebrew scriptures. So 70 scholars come together. The, the, the term 70 uh, is Septuagint in the Hebrew language. So they copy the uh, Hebrew language into Greek, and that is known as the Septuagint. 70 scholars worked on it. The Septuagint 
becomes the Greek uh, Bible, we'll say, the Old Testament. That continues, and then the church has the New Testament written in Greek, but the language is already shifting again. And so it's translated into Latin. Before we even get that done, that language is dead and gone, and the people have moved into a host of languages. It, it takes a couple of uh, diversions, but most directly to our Bible, it goes into German. From German, it's then translated into English. Now, King James, when he commissioned the King James Version, had his scholars take all of those translations and do a comparative study in order to render what you have in your hands today. If you're reading from the King James Version or the New King James Version, which has got problems, but it's close. Uh, my point is this. This book, what we're reading here, and what Moses is giving us an account of, is very, very accurate. Very, very well protected. This account, you know, I, I hate to, I'm going to slip up and call it a story. I hate to call it a story because it implies, you know, it's fiction. It's a fable. It's some children's thing. This is a historic account of what took place, of what transpired. Now, I mentioned Mormonism. Uh, when any book is translated multiple times, or even once, um, you know, there have been very popular books in time. Harry Potter's been translated, I don't even know how many different languages now. Originally written in English. When linguists study uh, writings, it doesn't matter what language it's in when they have it, they can tell you by looking at it what language courses it has come through. They can see the trace elements of English there. Okay? Our Bible has very distinct markers of Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, German, and English. That, that's a pretty specific path that this has come through. Mormonism, Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith supposedly finds the golden plates, translates the Book of Mormon directly from uh, Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics, which that's a phrase he made up. They don't even exist. Um, then when he produces it and hands it to the public, the linguists get it, and as they examine it, it's remarkable because it has all the trace elements of Aramaic being translated into Hebrew, being translated into Greek, being translated into Latin, being translated into uh, German, being translated into English. There's only one other book on the planet that does that. It's the King James Version of the Bible. Why does Joseph Smith's book which was translated, according to him, directly from Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics, directly in English. Why does it have the trace elements of all these languages? Because he's a plagiarist. It's a forgery. He has copied the King James Bible. Its form, its language, its construct. You know, when brother ventures with brother into the wood, and the axe lighteth upon the neck, and the head slippeth from the shoulder, is a very specific path 
to say two brothers went into the woods, one of them was mad, cut the other one's head off. That, that language construct only occurs when you come from specifically Hebrew into Greek, Latin, German, and then English. What we have is the original. Everybody else is trying to imitate this, you guys. This is one consistent historic account. So when we're reading Genesis, and it tells us Jacob wanted to go and be buried in the promised land, and then Exodus 1 begins by saying, and these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household <clears throat> came with Jacob. This is a historic record. And on top of it, it's being verified all of the time. As the archaeologists dig and the historians read and discover, everything points back to this being 100% accurate. We're hearing in our culture that this is an opinion written by men thousands of years ago, and our culture has no need of it anymore. I cannot tell you enough how much our culture needs this book. This, this culture all around us is going to defame and demoralize this book more and more every single day. And as you hold to it, you're going to get that name attached to you too. Crazy, fraudulent, wrong. Remember what Jesus said, Sermon on the Mount, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, how blessed are you when they persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you for my name's sake, for so they treated the prophets. Wow, remarkable, right? You know, you, you get this thought process going, like I'm probably, if I want to be like one of the prophets, I'm probably going to have to be killed. I'm probably going to have to be beaten to death or sawn in half in a log, or I don't know what. Not so. If your neighbors, friends, and even family are just whispering behind your back, and saying evil things about you, so they treated the prophets. Jesus made that equal with them. That's remarkable. Hold your head high, right? What do you see in the book of Hebrews? And the, what we refer to as the hall of faith, you know, gives that list of how they were homeless. You know, they were, you know, wearing animal skins. And, and it says the world rejected them and the world was not worthy of them. I'm not encouraging you to be prideful not telling you to be full of yourself, but the dignity that is Jesus Christ. The accuracy of God's word. Hold to it. Trust it. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, again, here we read Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, and these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All of these who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now, a couple of things to examine here. The first of which is you're going to run into a couple different uh, numberings that are different in different places in the scripture. You're going to read, you know, 70 here. You're going to read 70. You're going to read 76, and people are going to argue about which number is it, or is the whole thing inaccurate? It has everything to do 
with how they're counting. Are they counting the sons? In certain instances, they're counting some of the grandsons also who were alive during this transition. So but don't be discouraged when you come to differences. Just read carefully in context what you're talking about and you'll discover the truth. You know, we're going to see uh, later on, the scripture talks about how they were in bondage for 400 years. And then you're going to read that it was 430 years that they were in. People go, oh, see, it's wrong. We can't believe it. They were in bondage for 400 years. They were in the land longer than that. We're going to read here in just a moment that the Pharaoh changes and they get a new Pharaoh and they become the slaves of the Egyptians. So there was a period of time that they lived in the land where they weren't in bondage. They were going to be oppressed for that 400 years. Now this statement, increased abundantly, multiplied, grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Exodus chapter 12, we're going to get to verse 37, says, Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides children. That's a lot of men. That's a lot of people. When it says increase dramatically, it, 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 when you're unconcerned about provision and you're unconcerned about the care of your children, you know, cultures have always had much larger reproduction than the culture we currently live in. Um, you know, there, there was a time not long ago where families in the United States uh, were five on average. You know, some of you here from families of nine and, you know, larger even. I had a, an eighth grade uh, teacher, Mr. Fitzpatrick, he's, you know, Irish Catholic, and uh, his mother birthed 14 siblings to him. You know, he had, he, he was like number seven in there somewhere, and there were 14 children, the 15 altogether. All of them lived. You know, big house, lots of kids. You know, children were raising children. You know, people go, what is wrong? They're crazy. Why not? You got a farm. You know, you need, you need workers. Just make them. Let the farm grow as the family grows. That was commonly what went on. That was commonly what went on. <laughs> the culture has shifted and changed so much. You know, everybody wants to be really careful as how they talk to the current generation. You know, there are some things that summarize, well, every youthful generation, it's not just this generation, like laziness, selfishness. People are like, don't talk like that. They won't come to church. This is our culture's problem. You know, you've heard me give the statistics in the past. No nation, you have to have a birth rate of 2.1 in order to stay the same. The death rate is fixed into that, 1 out of every 10. 2.1, that keeps you at even keel. You'll stay the same populace if you have a birth rate of 2.1. No nation has ever recovered from a birth rate lower than 1.8. They dissolve. Immigration takes them over. Immigration birth rates take them over. Invasion takes them over. 1.8, no nation in world history has ever recovered 
from my birth rate lower than 1.8. It's impossible, mathematically and genetically impossible, to recover from a birth rate lower than 1.6. Once you dip below that, the death rate is so high that you can't get the birth rate and the recovery to take place before you're going to be absorbed by the nation surrounding. The immigration is going to take over, and you're done. Your, your national identity is over at 1.6. Cannot recover from it. The United States is currently at 1.8. 1.8. My personal opinion on this, I have seen no statistical studies on it, is because we still are the strongest Christian nation in the world as far as our own claims about ourselves. I, I wonder about that a lot of the time. But, you know, when surveys are given, there are more people in America that say they're Christians than anywhere else on the planet. We are potentially the greatest Christian influence in the world. Our enemy wants to convince us to continue to shrink in numbers and influence. Oh, we can't possibly. Well, you know, the population problem. You know what's coming next if you've been here for years. You know what I always say in this case. There is not a population problem on planet Earth. You can fit the entire population of the planet inside Texas. Still, to this day, give everyone 1,268 square feet of their own. It's a massive planet. Absolutely massive. You know, I often would mention how have you, you know, driven through the Midwest of the United States, you know, and just seen you know, thousands of acres and mile after mile of cornfield, you know, unoccupied, no one's living there. Try going to Iceland. You want to talk about a place that is unoccupied. Oh my gosh, you know what I'm saying? It's just all the way to the horizon. Nobody lives there, you know what I'm saying? There's a lot of room. Nobody wants to live in Iceland. I don't care where we live. There's room. That's my point. There's an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Lucifer himself wants to destroy God's creation. He wants, to, he wants to kill all of humanity. And he's doing it ideologically. People are convinced we can't have big families. We can't have any more kids. Why not? Why not? These numbers right here, you know, we've talked about this biblically in Genesis. Where did Cain get his wife? You know, God must have you know, had another creation that took place. He created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden, and he created other human beings elsewhere. That's a false teaching. The scripture does not teach that at all. What it does say is that Adam and Eve had sons and daughters after Cain and Abel. So that's at least two girls and two boys, because in both cases, it's plural, sons and daughters. Adam and Eve lived to be a thousand years old, nearly. A thousand years old. By the time they passed away, if each of those children were married and had four children to a family themselves, there would have been 75,000 people on the planet. Procreation. God said, go forward and fill the planet. Fill the planet. We haven't even come close. Oh, no, I know there's a population problem. I've been in New York City. Yes, New York City has a population problem. The biggest population problem they have in New York City is cars. It's not even the people, right? Anybody that's even driven through knows that. There are, there are three locations on planet Earth that are overpopulated, without question. Los Angeles, Hong Kong, New York City. 
without question. And that's because of selfishness. Everybody's going to have their stuff all piled up in a huge stack right here. How about this? Manhattan, right? 16 miles long, two miles wide, right? Millions of people. Mount Desert Island, right? 10 miles wide, 16 miles long. Were you aware of that? There's 10,500 people on that island. That's permanent year-round residence. Yeah. God designed this planet to take care of us, and we're supposed to take care of it. It's the stupidity and the sin. They increased, multiplied, grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Why? Because there are people that obey God. I'm not telling you to go home this afternoon and make more kids. I'm not. I'm just saying this anti-child, anti-family mentality of our culture is born in hell itself. It's a wicked thing, and our culture is steeped in that idea right now. You know, I just can't even believe, you know, reproductive rights. It's hard to believe that I would quote Jimmy Carter standing right here. But Jimmy Carter said, the Democratic Party will not have legitimacy amongst the American people until they recognize the rights of the unborn child. What a remarkable thing for that man to say. You know, a, a staunch Democrat who's, you know, so much of that party is involved in you know, freedom of choice, murder of children. God's plan. It works beautifully for the nation of Israel. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt. And this is what I'm talking about. The bondage begins here. Who did not know Joseph. How do you not know Joseph? You know, there's a word we use all the time. Ignorant, right? Oh, guys, he was just ignorant of Joseph's existence. Ignorant of how Joseph saved the whole world. If you haven't ever noticed before, the root word of ignorant is ignore. I'm not going to pay attention to that. I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to look at that. It's your responsibility. It's your responsibility to know history, to know those who have gone before us to whatever degree you can. I'm not asking you to become a historian, but to just float along. I watched an interview, <laughs> Charlie Rose. Here I am just mentioning all of these wonderful, you know. People. Charlie Rose was interviewing our nation's two leading Economist, this is back uh, um, early, I forget when, let's say 20, 2014, I think it was. So anyway, um, they were discussing an economic plan that the administration had put forward and why it failed. And um, the economic plan was brilliant. It was basically stop spending your money, you know, the whole nation. Stop spending your money, stop living on credit, pay off your debt. Make more than you spend. That I mean, that's the summary of it. Like that works in you know, 100% of the scenarios. If you just stop spending more than you make, pretty simple process. Charlie Rose asked 
the Republican, this is a, a Democrat and a Republican, they asked the Republican, um, and I'm not trying to turn this into a political speech, uh, he, he asked him, why do you think that <clears throat> this plan didn't get voted through? Why do you think that it didn't succeed? And he stopped and he thought for a minute. And then he said, because the most popular magazine in America is People. People don't research anything. They, they're not engaged in what's going on economically. They're not looking at what our nation is doing. They're not insisting that the politicians do right and wrong. They're just interested in who's dancing with what star. And that's all that our, our culture is mostly engaged in. You watch them. They just walk around like this all day. Right? Right? How many people here remember the Blackberry? There are hands that actually did not go up. That's remarkable. But anyway, do you guys, are you aware that uh, downtown London, uh, one year into Blackberries being in service, padded all of their signs and their utility poles? I'm not making that up because, because of all the head injuries. People walking like this straight into, oh, yeah. this is our culture. Walking right into the problems, not paying any attention because their face is buried in that. This guy doesn't know. Joseph saved the world. Literally, right? There was a 14-year plan in place, and he saved the world. Seven years of feast, put everything in storage. Seven years of famine, let's let it out slowly and make sure nobody dies. Really smart guy. So smart, Pharaoh was like, you're in charge. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to sit back here. He literally said, the only thing I'm going to be concerned about is my own household. Puts Joseph in charge. And now we come to this. Don't be surprised. Listen, do not be surprised when we turn around and this nation is even further in the toilet. Because we live in a culture that ignores everything. Be the conscience, right? Be Salt and light is what Jesus told us to do. He said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up out of the land. It's just wickedness. There's no inclination historically, in the Bible, anywhere that we can find that Israel had it in their heart that there was some form of rebellion against Egypt whatsoever. This is the selfish, greed-filled plan of a pharaoh to use them as forced labor. He knows the burden that he's about to put them under, and he knows that they're going to have a heart to get out from underneath that burden. And so he has to set a plan in motion to enslave them before that gets in their hearts. You know, he's, he's making this sound like, oh, they're going to come to this conclusion. Just look at them. They aren't thinking along those lines at all at this point. But he understands how his wickedness is going to affect them. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them and to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. 
But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. Listen, brothers and sisters. Affliction causes growth. Ease causes death. If you're a person that has said, uh, I want to follow the Lord more than I ever have, brace yourself. Because the difficulty is coming. It is coming. You're going to be tried on every level. You know, I... Totally repetitive. I have nothing original. I shared with you previously. Uh, there was I built towers for years. There was a tower tragedy years ago in Texas. They're building a massive structure. And long story short, they made the decision to go and purchase a shackle at a local hardware store to finish the lift the following the morning. And when they were performing the lift... An error occurred, and the tower section they were lifting drifted into the tower and caught on the tower as they continued to winch it upward. The shackle they had purchased blew open. The section that was being lifted swung around and clipped the leg out of the tower. Three legs on the tower, guy wires holding it, clips one leg right out, ping, busts it. The top of the tower turns and corkscrews to the ground. 1,100 feet of tower just wrapped around itself and came careening out of the sky. 11 people were on the crew. Nine of them died in the incident. All because they bought a shackle that was not load rated. And when, in the industry, when you're going to work under those settings, it'll literally have a tag on what you're buying that says load rated and then it'll give you all of the ramifications and breakdown for what that you know shackle or carabiner is capable of handling they pour molds of shackles that are just junk metal that are non-load rated and you could take it home and use it for the rest of your life on your tractor in your yard you know and it says 20 tons on it but it's not actually load rated for 20 tons. Load rated is pour the mold, put the pin in, and then actually put 20 tons on that shackle. And see if it can hold it. Actually, they over tension it. Uh, I think it's by 10% to see if it can actually hold the real weight. And then you'll get the shackle with all of the specs and the testing. And someone has signed off on it saying it's load rated. You and your life. We believe, right? We say these things. Charles Spurgeon said there are only two types of believers. Those that truly believe and those that believe they believe. It's not until you're load tested. You've got to be put under the strain. You've got to see whether your faith can actually carry you through those hard circumstances. And there's a certain confidence that comes out of that, is there not? When you've stepped through the other side and you've relied upon the Lord in faith through the process, where now when you face the next circumstance, you're not excited about it, you're not happy about it, you're not longingly waiting for the difficulty to come, but you know, I've been load tested. I have been through the fire. 
I can handle this. That causes growth. Boom, the church explodes. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls. 3,000 people come to the Lord and they return home, right? Because they've come into Jerusalem to you know, examine and see and experience the worship at Pentecost. Now that they've received the Holy Spirit and become Christians, they return to their dwelling place and they spread the gospel everywhere. And then the persecution comes. And it's heavy. First it's the Jews, and then the Jews incite Rome, and then Rome joins in the fun, and now they're cutting you know, James's head off, and all kinds of bad things are happening, and, and it gets really intense, and the church just grows like wildfire. Spreads all the way back to Europe, all the way across the top of the Mediterranean, you know, through those lower parts of Europe, into Asia Minor, across the top, of the African continent. You just can't stop it until 350 AD. Constantine, the Roman emperor, says, enough of this persecution. I'm losing everybody. They're joining Christianity and departing from Rome. I need soldiers. So, let's make the state religion Christianity. And suddenly it becomes very easy to be a Christian. It's wildly accepted. You can, get, you can get a position as a priest or a pastor easily in the Roman Empire. And the church dies. No joke. It just ends right there. It's all done. The growth of the church is over. And historically, that's exactly what happens. Men turn a powerful move of the Holy Spirit into a system and make it comfortable and easy, and the church dies. It is affliction difficulty right it wasn't nike it was benjamin franklin that first said no pain no gain this is a truth known throughout history here more they afflicted them the more they multiplied and grew and they were in dread that's egypt was in dread of the children of israel look at romans chapter 5 beginning at verse 3 there, Paul says to the church in Rome, glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Perseverance, character, hope. These are what we need. How do we acquire them? Through difficulty. I've quoted James chapter 1 endlessly to this fellowship, right? It's not joyful to experience the affliction. It's not. But James said, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you're faced with trials of many kinds, because the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If you're going through the trial, God has recognized you're not mature, and you're not complete, and you're lacking something, according to what I just quoted from James, right? Perseverance must finish its work so that you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The trials make us grow. Not joyful, but you can consider it pure joy because of what God promises the outcome will be. Exodus chapter 1, verse 13, So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and all manner of 
service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. How quickly we forget how bad things were. You know, have you ever had your heart long to go back to what we sometimes call the good old days? <laughs> Better to refer to them as the bad old days. Amen. The bondage. It's remarkable to me that this group of people is in bondage and we just, this vivid description of their difficulties and then you turn the pages just a little ways and you're in the book of Numbers chapter 11 and at verse 5, the people of Israel say, we remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. All we have now is God's provision. If only there were some garlic. Have we not acted like that? Do we not get our head wrapped around the silliest things? Yeah, garlic, right. There was. Leeks and onions, you sure had those. And a whip on your back every day, remember that? And bondage and sweat and toil, and they were drowning your children in the Nile. Does anybody remember that? Oh, but we had garlic. Oh, it's silly the way we behave. As you read through, remember these moments a little more. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. Now, these are like the doctors in charge. Okay, These aren't just the only two women who are responsible for birthing. These are the women who train others and oversee the work of being midwives. So spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shepara, the name of the other was Hua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it's a son, then you shall kill them. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Now, I want to point out one more time that Margaret Sanger was the founder of the origin of the idea behind Planned Parenthood. She belonged to an organization known as the American Eugenics Society. She was working very closely with an international group of doctors to study genetics and how to create a superior race. Margaret Sanger's goal was to rid America of the African Americans. Like, no joke, in writing, that was her goal. The creation institution of Planned Parenthood and abortion as an industry in America was Margaret Sanger's dream to get rid of African Americans. She organized Planned Parenthood to be in African American communities, nowhere else, to offer free abortions for them. She was trying to wipe out the African American race. Very racist. The group of international doctors she was working with left the United States, went back to their home country of Germany, and formed, you guessed it, the Nazi Party. 
and they carried on their experiments. And that American Eugenics Society, recognizing that there was sort of this bad reputation amongst them and the way they behaved and the things they taught and thought, changed their name to the American Medical Association. Welcome to America. Kill the kids. When you see that it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God. Amen. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? and saved the male children alive. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. <laughs> Straight up lie. Straight up lie. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives. How interesting is that? And the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. That is not a mansion, as false teachers say. It is not wealth and prosperity that God provided for them. It's not possessions at all. What it is is children. That's literally what God is saying. So it was, because the midwives feared God, that he, meaning God, provided children for them. They had large families. You protect the lives of children, I'm going to give you kids. They themselves had large families, is what's being said. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. They've told Peter and John, do not preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. There's a debate amongst preachers. Is it right to lie? You know, I mean, what if you're in Nazi Germany and you're hiding Christians and Jews in your home and the you know, Nazis show up and want to take those people away and put them in concentration camps and kill them? There are literally preachers that say, no, you, you would need to you know, tell them the truth. <laughs> Stupid. I see all throughout the scripture, People that obey God rather than men look right at murderous men and say, no, no spies here. I don't know what you're talking about. They were here, but they left. And God preserves and protects Rahab and her household. There comes a point. Civil disobedience, you guys, we're told by Paul to obey. I read it last week. Obey the authorities. They're appointed by God. I'm not telling you Oh, if you don't like the political position, stop paying taxes, rebel against the government. Nothing like that. When it comes down to that government looking at you and saying, from now on, you're going to have to disobey God. Oh, well. I know what I'm going to be doing. There are wonderful examples all throughout history of men and women who have followed the Lord and been blessed in the process by rebelling against the wickedness of their government and their culture. You know, the resistance movement now. What a joke. 
that is all such a bunch of overinflated egos. It's just lame. There's going to come a day soon, soon, mark my words, where you're not going to have the freedoms you currently have. And you're going to be persecuted for your faith. And you're going to have to stand up and say, too bad. You need to settle that in your heart. Now look at verse 22 to close. So Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born, you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. I'll just leave you with this concept. Think about how poetic God is. Oh, drown my children. Gotcha. Just let the passage of time flow by a little bit. And what does God do to all of the Egyptian army? Drowns them in the Red Sea. You going to drown my kids? I'll drown your kids. Right? Do not take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. All throughout the scripture, you see it. And you can stand by when God does carry it out and say, righteous and true are your judgments, God. He is going to have his day in court. And we want to be on his side. <laughs> Surrender yourself to him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your love. And we mean that. Your protection, Lord. I see your anger right here. Your righteous anger to deal with those who wish to harm your family, your children. Lord, protect us. There's a wicked world all around us that is trying to harm us. Lord, help us to be good, quiet, peaceable people. Help us to focus on your gospel, to not get angry about these things and get our protest signs and go drive the world away. Help us to be balanced people who know you are the judge, you are the king, and we can trust you and not react in fear. That we can go out and just love the world. Whoever they are. Transgender. Angry. Militant. Millennial. Whatever. Lord, help us to reach the drug addicts. The criminals. Lord. The man or woman who's cheating on their wife or husband. Help us to just be very, very accepting people. Loving people. That that help people leave those things behind. That they would come follow you and experience your fulfillment in life. Thank you for what you've done in each of us. We were those people. We were filthy, rotten sinners. You loved us. Thank you for that. Help us to be kind to those we minister to, Lord. Give us opportunities. Open doors. Open our mouths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.